All right, let's go to God's Word. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The title of this morning's sermon is The Law and the Good Life. Uh, Remember, the question I've put before us in this sermon series is, what is your version of the good life? And inside the answer to that question is another question, and that's this. What is the role of the law in the good life? What is the role of the law in the good life? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents the kingdom life as the good life. He starts out with the Beatitudes, and Jesus describes this, the character of the good life. He says, happy are those who are poor, contrite, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure-hearted, peaceful, and persecuted. He says, that's the good life. Then he describes the effect that that character has on the world. As we live out the Beatitudes, we will be persecuted. But we will also be the salt that gives people a taste of the good life and the light that gives people a vision of the good life. And when Jesus was talking about us being the light of the world, he said that the world will see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. So naturally, an attentive student would ask themselves, well, what are the good works that Jesus is talking about? So Jesus, being a good teacher, then goes into describing the good works of the good life in basically the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So our text this morning introduces Jesus' view of the relationship between the law and the good life. So please read along with me as I read Matthew 5. Verses 17 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, One of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 119 tells us that God's word is sweeter than the honey from the honeycomb. Let's taste and see that the Lord's word is good. Uh, A movie that came out about 20 years ago that I really liked was a movie called Saving Private Ryan. It describes uh, the desperate search for Private James Francis Ryan during World War II. I see Ryan Ryan and his three brothers all fought in World War II, and uh, three of his brothers died, and Private Ryan was missing. So the government found out about this, and they said, we don't want this mother to lose all of her children in the war, so we need somebody to go find Private Ryan to rescue him and bring him to safety. So they contacted Captain Miller, who was played by Tom Hanks, and they sent him and his men to find Private Ryan. And the whole rest of the movie is this harrowing mission as they go through the city of Normandy to find Private Ryan. Eventually they do, and Private Ryan and his friends are guarding two bridges in one of the cities. And they went to Private Ryan and they said, Private Ryan, we've come to rescue you. All your brothers have died. 
We're giving you a ticket home. You don't have to fight in the war anymore. You can leave. And Private Ryan says, these guys are the only brothers that I have, so I'm going to stay with them and I'm going to fight. So Captain Miller and his men, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to protect Private Ryan, so that's what they do. They stay to protect him. Of course, the Germans come to take the bridge. And when the Germans come, there's a firefight. The Americans successfully fend off the Germans, but in the process of the firefight, Captain Miller is shot. As he lays on the ground dying, Private Ryan runs over to him, picks him up, looks at him, and with his last breath, Captain Miller looks at Private Ryan and says, earn it. Earn this. And the movie closes with an older Private Ryan and his family standing over Captain Miller's grave. And Private Ryan says to his family, he hopes that he has been worthy of all that Miller and his, his men did for him. And he asks his wife, have I led a good life? Have I been a good man? When Christians think about the death of Jesus, when people think about the death of Jesus, I think what happens to us in our mind is we imagine ourselves looking at Jesus, looking at him on the cross, and like Captain Miller with his last breath, somehow we pervert the gospel and we hear Jesus saying, earn this, earn it. Somehow we twist the gospel of what Jesus has done for us and we turn it into something that we have to earn for ourselves. And then when we look at the law of God, we hear that voice in the back of our head, earn this, and we think to ourselves, well, this is how we earn it. We keep the law. Jesus died for me so that I could keep the law to earn the salvation that he paid for. And what happens when we do that is the law of God becomes something that we either fearfully keep or we frantically fight off. And we spend our lives in fear and failure and frustration. Because we can't be the person that Jesus died to make us to be. What I want to do this morning, as we look at the law and the gospel, the law and the good life, what I want you to see is this. That the law is not the way that we earn God's grace. We receive God's grace... Through Jesus Christ, by faith in him, by trusting in him. And as we receive his grace, he frees us to live the good life. And the law shows us how to live the good life that Jesus earned for us. The good life is not something we earn. The good life is something that Jesus paid for us. And the law shows us how to live in the good life. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at Jesus and the law, Christians and the law, and the gospel and the law. Jesus and the law, Christians and the law, gospel and the law. First, let's talk about Jesus and the law. If you look at verses 17 and 18, Jesus gives 
his perspective on the law. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the law and the prophets is a Jewish way of referring to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, right? What we call the Old Testament. And Jesus teaches two important points about the Old Testament. First, he said he, does not, he did not come to abolish it. Now, why do you say that? He said that because it's likely that people were accusing him of rejecting the Old Testament, because he didn't take some of the typical Jewish interpretations of the Old Testament law. For example, Jesus regularly talked with women. And the rabbis in his day said this about talking with women. They said, he that talks with much, much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna. Jesus regularly shared fellowship with people who were considered sinners. This signified that he accepted them as friends and welcomed them. Well, the rabbis in his day said this about eating with sinners. Keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. So in their mind, holy men, righteous men, avoid talking with women and avoided eating with sinners. But Jesus did both of those two things. So they accused him of rejecting the law. And Jesus said, I'm not rejecting the Old Testament law. I'm not here to abolish it. And then he gives us the second principle. I came to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law in two ways. First, he fulfilled it by showing us the full extent to which the law applies. The fullest extent to which the law applies. He showed us how the the law applies to everything in life. What he would not do is he would not let the scribes and the Pharisees selectively apply the law of God to certain areas in certain ways. No, no, no. They wanted to restrict the law and relax it so that they could keep it. But Jesus came to show the full depth and scope of the law. And then secondly, Jesus fulfilled the law by being the substance that it foreshadowed. The entire Old Testament foreshadows the person and work of Jesus. We talked about that last fall when we looked at the covenants in the Old Testament. right? But you can go through the Old Testament and and in some way you can look at every major story and even every minor story in detail. And in some way they foreshadow the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament law was the shadow of which Christ is the substance. And he perfectly embodied God's law. So this means if we want to understand the relationship between the good life and the law, we look at Jesus. We look at the way that he lived his life. Jesus shows us the fullness of what it meant to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Uh, On Friday night, we had the the privilege of uh, celebrating Good Friday with River Oaks. And the passage that I got to read in the worship service was the passage where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying on the night before his crucifixion. He's there with his disciples in the garden. He knows that he is about to be crucified. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that all of the sin and suffering from all the world is going to be placed on his shoulders. He's there in the garden, literally on his knees, sweating drops of blood. 
And what is his prayer? His prayer is, thy will be done, not my will be done. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is to face sin and suffering and say, thy will be done, not my will be done. That's what it looks like to embody the law of love. And then Jesus embodied what it meant, the fullness of what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself, right? He honored his parents even though they didn't understand him. He told the truth even when it was uncomfortable. He gave people life even when it cost him his. He used his words to build others even when they reviled him. He lived a life of continual thankfulness despite the continual demands that he faced, he always looked out for others. He was a man for others, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls him. When he was out in the crowds, he heard a leopard cry out for help, and everybody else would have left the leopard alone. But what did Jesus do? He moved towards the leper, and he heals him. He was walking through a crowd, and there was a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, and Jesus is on the way to heal someone who is dying. That lady stops to touch his cloak with his superstitious faith. And what does he do? Does he rebuke her and say, get away from me, woman? Don't you know I've got things to do? No, he stops. He talks to her. He heals her, and he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When a sinful woman came to a meal to wash his feet with her tears and her hair, did Jesus say, hey, get out of here. What are you doing? Who are you? Don't you know that I'm a rabbi and I can't be around sinful women? No. He says, woman, you are forgiven. He sends her out in peace. He showed us the fullness of a life Trusting and obeying God's law. It's a life of love for God and a life of love for others. And that is something that we desperately need to see because in our heart of hearts, the little, the Pharisee in our hearts, the sin that lives in us, what we want to do is we want to do exactly what the Pharisees did. And we want to we bring the law down. We want to relax it so that we can keep it. That's what we're going to look at secondly, the Christian and the law. Jesus says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious people of Jesus' day. They were the religious professionals. Okay, they were going to do it right. They were going to keep the law. And so what they did was they calculated that the law contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And they spent their entire life trying to keep all of them perfectly all the time. And Jesus says their righteousness wasn't even good enough to get into heaven, let alone be the greatest. 
How is that? Because in their, their sinfulness, what they did was they relaxed the law of God. They tried to bring it get down to a place that they could keep it. They relaxed it. And then they added their own oral tradition to it so that they could build a system of legalism that they could keep so they could have their own self-righteousness. See, they missed that the, le- the law was never about building your self-righteousness. The law was always about God saving us and us keeping the law because of, uh, of gratitude for what he has done for us. But they saw as a law, the law as a way to build their own self-righteousness. So they tried to make it external and straightforward and keepable. But listen to what Jesus says about their self-righteousness. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Their holiness was unholy because it was without love. They didn't have the true heart of love for God and for others. And they're not the only ones who live like this. Our sin causes us to do the same thing. Christians and religious people today still create a system of legalism that allows us to try to relax the law so that we can keep it. What we do is we distort God's law into something that we can keep so we can build our own self-righteousness. Uh, Dr. Dan Doriani, he's a professor at Covenant Seminary, and he, in talking about this passage, he describes three forms of legalism that we still fall into today. And I think they're, they're incredibly uh, accurate. He says, the first and the most pernicious form of legalism attempts to attain or retain salvation by works. It's the person that's trying to follow God's law to save themselves or the Christian who's trying to follow God's law to retain their salvation. This legalist, in a sense, performs good works to gain the favor of God. Who, and that God becomes the patron of achievers. The second form of legalism, and this is more subtle, and this may be more where we fall into, fabricates new laws based on tradition or misinterpretation of Scripture and then grants these new laws the authority of Scripture themselves. So this kind of legalism, he says, may forbid what is permissible, such as playing cards, or may require what is advisable, such as morning devotions. It's that kind of legalism that slips in and wants to find all the little pet sins of culture and say those are bad, those are wrong, when they're not in Scripture. Or the kind of legalism that takes a good, legitimate application of Scripture and makes a law out of it that everyone has to keep. And the last form of legalism, he says, can mean an exceptional concentration on law and obedience to the exclusion of every other aspect of life. He says, many scribes and Pharisees suffered from all three forms of legalism. And he could add that many Christians, including myself and us, struggle with these as well. And so I'll ask you, the Pharisee in in your heart, which one of these types of legalism do you struggle with? Are you here today because deep down in your heart, you know that you're a sinner and you really think that this is the Sunday, that if I come this Sunday, I can earn God's grace through my attendance? You can't do it. 
Have you created a system of laws where you are, you are taking things that are extra biblical and you're making those requirements pe- for people? You're taking things that are advisable, that are good, and you're making them new laws that are a burden to you and to your family. Are you concentrating so much on focusing on the law and perfect obedience that you are merciless to everyone around you? It's that form of legalism that slips into our hearts and causes us to fear God and to rebel against him in frustration. That's how we distort God's law. That's a religious way of distorting God's law. But then there's the, there's the irreligious. At some point, people just, they, they think God and him are so bad, they just say, God, I want you to get as far away from me as possible. And, so, right, and they create their own view of the good life and their own system of rules to achieve it. Uh, Pastor David Zoll, uh, he playfully but prophetically points this out in what he calls his seculosity creed. He's created a creed of the secular, and it kind of parallels the Nicene Creed. And I want to read it for you. This is playful, but I think it's true, and I've got it up there for you, all right? I thought maybe this might give us a little bit of levity in the middle of our sermon. Listen as he writes. We believe in oneself, the authentic and improving, arbiter of the real and enough, of all that is, both online and IRL, that's in real life. We believe in one goal, our becoming Tom Brady, or possibly his wife Giselle, eternally killing it. Productive but creative, undistracted yet non-anxious, true soulmate of true soulmate. More engineered than born of one algorithm with the influencer, through whom all moments go viral. For our tribe and our tribe only, Tom became vulnerable delivered an Oprah-approved TED Talk and achieved work-life balance. For our sake, he was pillared on social media, gained weight, and was canceled. A few new cycles later, he started trending again. In accordance with admission standards, his daughter was accepted at Stanford, where she now studies sustainable entrepreneurship. He will run for office one day to redeem the the millennial and the boomer, and his haters will be forever silenced. We believe in the true diet, the biohack, the source of all omega-3s, which proceeds from carbless from the compost, which with fizzy water is devoured, then Instagrammed, where it is shared with Gwyneth Paltrow. We believe in one pure and non-problematic politics. We acknowledge the permanence of other people's mistakes. We look for the upward mobility of our children and the promised singularity, hashtag blessed. In this this secular creed that he has masterfully created, I could never do that, by the way. Don't ever expect me to do something like that. What is hidden in there are rules and assumptions and laws about the good life that every person who's rejected the law of God assumes and consumes. And even maybe some of us Christians or some of us religious people, we've taken our Christianity and our religiosity and we have wed it with the seculosity to create a mutt of Christianity. And what Jesus has come to do is he has come to save us from our religious ways that we distort God's law and from our irreligious ways that we discard God's law. And he is giving us a righteousness 
that comes not from our doing and teaching all of Jesus' commandments, but from Jesus' doing and teaching the commandments. See, Jesus says that the good life will not come from relaxing or distorting or discarding the law of God, but rather by doing and teaching all the law commands. How can anyone be righteous, right? If that's Jesus' standard of righteousness, doing and teaching all the law that God commands, how can we do that? How can we keep it? We can't. That's why there's Easter. Some have been wondering, when is he going to talk about Easter? (laughs) Now we're going to talk about Easter. We look at the gospel and the law. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, legalistic fear, failure, and frustration will consume all of us. Whether you've been a Christian your entire life, whether you're a religious person or whether you're an irreligious person, you cannot escape legalism. But thanks to Jesus, we can receive a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees and Tom Brady. But it only comes through his death and his resurrection. See, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets not only by perfectly living a law of love, a life of love and loyalty to God's word, but by perfectly and sacrificially giving himself for us on the cross. You see, all of the uh, rituals, the sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament, they all pointed to Jesus. They all pointed to a sacrifice that must be made so that unrighteous people can be made righteous. And Jesus fulfilled that part of the Old Testament. He fulfilled the law and the prophets by taking the punishment that we deserved. On the cross, we see that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died to make the unrighteous righteous. He died because he loved Pharisees and he wanted to rescue them from their Phariseeism. He died because he loved secular people that have consumed and believed all that the world has offered and he wanted to rescue them. But he had to pay their punishment. God's justice had to be satisfied on the cross. So on the cross, he took all the punishment that we deserved for our unrighteousness so that we could have his righteousness. I once uh, heard a seminary professor describe it this way. He said that uh, at one time there was an island in the, in the Asian area around Singapore, and they had very strict laws, and they had very strict capital punishment. And during this time, there was a drought in their community. And there was one well where they had to get water. And they had to protect that well because that well was the source of life. And so they said that there were only certain times and certain people that could go to the well and draw water. One night, there was a a boy who was handicapped, and he went to that well, and he took water from the well. The tribe found out about it, the group of people found out about it, and they brought him to the judge, and this, this boy stood before the judge, and the judge stood there with this dilemma. On the one hand, there has to be justice. If there's not justice, then the whole community will be thrown into chaos. On the other hand, you have this boy, he had compassion on this boy, 
He wanted to be merciful to this boy. You had this boy who, who didn't understand the law, didn't understand that he broke the law, and a boy who could never withstand the punishment of this law. The punishment was 20 lashes with a bamboo cane. And so the judge was faced with a dilemma. What would he do? He convicted the boy. He said this boy is guilty. They sent him to the executioner. They tied him to the pole where he would take his 20 lashes with the bamboo cane. But before the executioner could administer the first lash, the judge went up to the boy. He wrapped his arms around the boy and he told the executioner, he said, I want every lash to fall on my back. You punish him, but I'm going to take it. Not a single blow falls on him. And that's a picture of what Christ did for us on the cross. Christ said, I want to take every lash for their lust, for their greed, for their animosity, for their strife, for their unforgiveness, and for their odious self-righteousness. Every lash falls on my And in doing that, he established a righteousness that we receive, not a righteousness we achieve. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He paid the debt that we owed. He fulfilled the law that we broke. He was sacrificed so that we could be saved. And all who come to him by grace through faith receive his righteousness and receive the good life that he earned. And when you receive that grace in Jesus, what that does is that transforms your view of the law. Uh, As William Cowper famously wrote in one of his hymns, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his parting voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. When you see the law of God fulfilled on your behalf, it changes you from a slave to a child and it changes your work from duty into a choice. How do we know that that law has been filled, fulfilled? The resurrection. The resurrection is the proof certificate that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, that he has paid our punishment, that he has freed us from sin, and that now we can go and we have a new king and a new God, and we live a new life. Uh, there was a pastor who lived during the Civil War era. His name was Moses Drury Hope, and he was the church planner and pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia, for a short 52 years. He grew up a strict abolitionist, and he appalled slavery, as he rightly should have. When he got married, his wife brought with her seven slaves as a dowry. And on their wedding day, he went to all seven of those slaves and he handed them a certificate of freedom. And he said, here's your certificate of freedom. You can go anywhere you want to go and you can do anything you want to do. One of those slaves left and returned to his wife. The six others all stayed and served him faithfully until the day that he died. And when he gave them the certificate and they stayed, he tried to explain to him. He said, no, listen, You are free. You can go anywhere you want to go. You can do anything that you want to do. 
He was was baffled that these slaves would want to stay with him. And one of them looked at him, uh, this man who had cared for animals all of his life. He looked at him, he said, Sir, if I can go anywhere, I want to go and do anything I want to do. I would really like to go to your barn and take care of your animals and live with you as long as you would have me. And that man did. He served Moses' jury hope the rest of his life. Why would he do that? He did that because in a world that told him he was worse than, he was worse than property, that he was nothing in a world that disgraced him and disdained him, this master came and loved him, freed him, and provided him with a life better than he could have ever imagined. And he decided, I wanted nothing more than to stay with this master and live with him. That's how Christ transforms our view of the law, that the death and resurrection of Jesus has freed us, it's changed us and transformed us, and so we hand ourselves over to our good God and Father. And we serve him all of our days, not trying to earn his love, but because he loves us and because he gave his only son for us. So that when we're standing over our grave or when we're standing over someone else's grave or we're standing over the cross, we're not sitting there thinking, did I earn it? Did I do enough? The answer is no, you didn't. But Jesus did. In him it's finished. In him it's fulfilled. Receive it and live it. Let's pray.